creating drills and practice settings where the coach is telling them everything, what to do, how and when, and there's no learning involved. And anytime you have an environment where there's no learning, how do you expect to, to pass the test on game day when you haven't learned anything? Hey, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. We have an incredible guest today and Coach Sean Larkin who is the coordinator of skill development for the Los Angeles Dodgers. A few of the topics we get into are how to make our practices more game-like, why taking an individualized approach offers the best outcome for player and team, and we really dig into self-organization and constraint training and where traditional approaches may not be the best option. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Sean Larkin. Coach Larkin, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jonathan. I'm been looking forward to having this conversation with you, and uh, let's get going. Man, I'm really excited to to get you on the mic. I know you came by to our high school a couple of weeks ago and shared with our kids, and and I haven't got them to stop talking about it yet. All I hear is Coach Larkin is a is a superstar, and 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 you're not. So, uh, <laughs> but thank you for thank you for that, and and thank you for coming on the show to share with us. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your background, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so history of obviously of baseball, played my whole life, high school, college, uh, went to Cypress Junior College out of high school, from there, kind of a, a you know, different type of route with the Texas Tech um, out, of, out of Cypress, ended up kicking back to Cal State Northridge. Played in 2002, got drafted there out of the out of the ninth round from Northridge um, with the Cleveland Indians. Played through their minor league system, got to AAA briefly, became a player coach at the AA level 2007-2008. After the 2008 season, there wasn't really a full-time job in coaching at the time with, the, with that organization, and I decided to pursue some different different avenues to see what else was out there. And uh, honestly, I tried to do a sales route, chasing the pie in the sky, if you will. Minor league baseball player wasn't making much money. I said, hey, it's time to make some money now. Be a grown person. And went sales and absolutely hated it. That lasted about two months <laughs> before I decided uh, this isn't going to cut it for me. Ended up going back to California. Enrolled at Cal State Fullerton uh, to get my master's degree in, in sports psychology with Ken Revisa. And in the meantime, I helped out um, a friend of mine uh, at, a, at a high school. So I got into high school coaching, helped him out, and then it happened fast from there. Um, as I was doing prereq stuff for my master's, ended up getting a full-time job, a coaching position at Cal State Ridge, my alma mater. Uh, coached there for two years, um, went up to Fresno State for a semester, and again, just found my passion really wasn't in the collegiate ranks at the particular time with the different demands of a college coach, which are unique and, like I said, real demanding and for different reasons. and. I just felt my, my use in, in my skill sets and, and what I wanted to do lied better in professional baseball. So ended up fortunately being able to get back at the professional ranks. Uh, I think 2013, my first year back with the Indians. Um, and again, just kind of worked up the way that, um, from there as a hitting coach for a couple of years, ended up managing. And then, uh, 2000, at the end of what, the 2000, I guess, 15 season, the Dodgers called and asked for permission to contact me. For another, uh, the role I currently have, um, which is the coordinator of skill development. Uh, and that's kind of where I am today uh, with my role at the Dodgers. Um, through a long path of playing every level, coaching at now every level, um, other than the major leagues, basically, and, and now in a coordinator type role with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Well, that's awesome. And before we move forward with your current job, I'm a little bit curious. So you are a player coach. So did yes, you sir. like, did you put yourself at, at shortstop and write yourself in the four hole every day? <laughs> if that was the case, I wouldn't be on this conversation. I'd still be playing, right? <laughs> I could call all the shots. Yeah, it, it, basically it's a, contract, a contractual thing. Right? I'm on a player contract, uh, just basically in the other part of the locker room uh, on the coaching staff. That's, that's where that distinction comes from. Oh, okay. You know, uh, interestingly, that 2007 season, I did, I switched locker rooms in about two months into this, into this new role that I had, uh, we were shorter rosters, or, you know, we, we needed a guy to play and I was like the next man up. And I tell you what, I got 50 at bats after having played in two months. And, uh, those were the best, probably 50 at bats 
I've ever had my entire career. And this goes into the probably the more of a mental talk, but like I would just play like zero care in the world, uh, no consequence, had nothing to lose, and I put this together fifty at bats that I thought were pretty dang good, and it, it was funny. Just rolling out of bed basically, but it goes to show like hey, I remember thinking to myself like wow, this is what it feel like feels like just to go play without having to worry about any external consequence and. It was a lot of fun, but uh, that was that was the end of that run, and then it was full time coaching from there, and and now here we are. You were probably going, man. I may have to rethink this whole contract. Yeah, thing. you ain't lying. Yeah, you're not lying. I, unfortunately, I was just, I was like 27 or so, and that window was was closing you know, or completely closed um, in, in terms of that. So it, it was a lot of fun. Well, that's awesome, and I love your title. So one of the new things that or one of really the hot topics right now is skill development, how we develop skills. And that's really what this, this podcast is about. So I'm really excited to, to dig in on this with you. So talk to us about what the coordinator of skill development with the Dodgers looks like on a day to day basis. Yeah, that's, it's, it's really uh, evolved over the past now three years, two or three years now. Basically, my, the initially coming in, it was my role is to come in and evaluate how we practice and how we develop our players and just make it better across the board, offensively, defensively, any area I could possibly get my hands on and look at how we are practicing it in each element of our game and be better at it. And that's where it started. It's, you know, got really hands on now with the infielders, uh, if you will, infield coordinator. It's kind of falls on my plate without the title, but I, I do. I, I run the infield stuff now and also intimately involved with a lot of stuff we're doing offensively in terms of our our drills and how we use our environments linkedin pretty good with the r&d and use, use of technology and how we use that um, and how we translate that information in a practice setting uh, and just trying to design new programs and models and how can we utilize our time the best on the field so we can you know increase productivity and and, and skill transfer faster then that's kind of what my role entails and it's a lot of fun. Well, it sounds like it. And it's something that I think a lot of coaches that are interested in player development uh, are really interested in. So talk to us about specifically practice organization and, you know, how should we be evolving practices and what should we be doing in practice to help our players be more successful? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and, I, and I hate this answer, but you're going to hate it too, but it really depends. Uh, it really depends on... The group you have, it depends on your individual players. Uh, you can't prescribe one type of environment for everybody, for every team. Um, I think the best practice is is one that fits the needs of the individual player in the group. Um, so it depends on what you're, you know, it depends how you define, define success and, and what your end goal is, right? So are you looking to increase practice performance or are you looking for skill transfer into the game? And I think all of us as coaches, we want, man, we want this to transfer into the game. And that's where it can go one of two ways. You have a traditional approach where you got this rote learning, rep after rep, the perfect practice, you know, the air-free learning thoughts or, you know, the real highly cognitive or mechanical approach, which has been traditional because if you're practicing good, it makes everyone feel good. And that must mean we're getting better. Or you can go a more, you know, constraint sled approach, which is the new wave where you're, you're allowing Allowing your players the opportunity to define their own movement pattern or solution. Are you are you going to create environments where you allow your athletes, you know, some self exploration? You know, allow them to create their own solution strategies to the to the drills that we're creating. Um, and I think the more we get into it, and the more we'll talk about this more today, I think we'll lean towards the second one where we really want to replicate the game as much as possible. Allow our our players to determine what movement works best for them, given their body type, given their flexibility, mobility, um, their perception of what's happening in front of them in their environment, as opposed to uh, creating drills and practice settings where the coach is telling them everything, what to do, how and when, and there's no learning involved. And anytime you have an environment where there's no learning, how do you expect to, to pass the test on game day when you haven't learned anything? And I think if we can, the best practice environment is one that allows our players to explore for themselves, come up with solutions on their own to optimize their performance in a practice setting, which would, the more experiences we can get there, 
the more it's going to play out on a game day when we really want it. You know, without letting you off the hook too easily, can we <laughs> can we go with uh, let's say where does traditional where do traditional baseball practices go wrong? Does that make sense? So what what's yep. something that most practices consist of or do every single day or once a week or whatever that we should probably start cutting back on and changing it to something else? I think we miss traditionally in baseball, and, I, and again, this is. I'm speaking through the lens of where I'm at now, um, but it may change at the lower levels. But I think where we've missed traditionally in the past, and it maybe still currently, is the uh, this idea of this pr- perfect practice means it's perfect. This rote learning environment where we're doing rep after rep that doesn't simulate or replicate anything with the game. So we're talking like swings off a tee trying to, to mirror a perfect swing or ground ball off the ground ball right between my feet, and it's this per- perfect fielding mechanic. Or bullpens where every pitch it's scripted, like, hey, two fastballs, two, two fastballs away, two fastballs in, two breaking balls, three change-ups, whatever it may be, and you're done. None of that is game-like. And I think we're, we, we really need to ask the question as, as coaches, you know, like, are, are we trying to, are we trying to develop players that are, are these, are these robots who want to, who, who can execute a perfect mechanic over and over and over again? Or are we trying to develop develop players and facilitate a learning experience to where they can go out and perform in a game on their own and come up with their own solutions when the game's on the line in response to all the different varying things that happen in a game? That's where I think we're missing is I don't think traditionally we've allowed our players to explore that for themselves enough in a practice setting. And you can go across the board, whether it's hitting, defense, pitching, catching, whatever you want to call it. It's been this coach tells player what to do, player does what coach does, go to the game, doesn't happen. Okay, let's go back to the cage and work on these drills again. Go to the game, doesn't play out. And it's like, well, yeah, because all we did was hit off a tee, you front toss flipped me and threw 40-mile-an-hour 40, 40 BP. And then I get into the game, and this guy's throwing 88 to 90 with a breaking ball changeup. And moving up, down, in, and out, now I'm getting beat by speed, location, height, and I've not practiced any of that, and <laughs> I'm expected to in a game to perform. Uh, same thing with, with uh, state infielders where, hey, catch all 10 of these balls and that's a good day. Well, great. They were all two to three hoppers, one or two steps to my left and right, and then I got in the game and I got, I got four, you know, a couple of slow rollers. I got, Balls that made me range to my backhand four or five steps, and I had to make throws off balance, and had to make a one hand and play, and I had to make a feed to second base across my body, and I haven't practiced any of that. You know that's not fair. And then we expect our, and we get mad at our players for making errors. It's like, well, we haven't created an environment a that replicated the game in terms of decision making, hop reads, or speed changes, or pitch variation. The stressor of it. Have I practiced in an environment that that created some sort of stressor or consequence? the crowd, another team, all those types of things that we can add to a practice environment that traditionally we haven't because we're trying to have this practice performance be great because that's what makes everyone feel good. You know, coach feels good because the player executed it. Hey, he did what I told him. He did it. It looked good while we're getting better. Player leaves. Oh, I feel great. I just barreled 10 balls up in a row. I feel great. I must be good. Um, and then you get in the game environment, it's completely chaotic and different. And traditionally, that's what happens. Well, that makes sense. And you're coming from a world that is about as traditional as it gets, which is the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pro baseball. So what are some steps that you've taken, maybe even lately, to help uh, help fight the what we've always done for what this may be better in, in the long run for? Yeah, exactly. And that's. We always say you got to explain the why, right? You got to explain why. You know why? Do, why are we doing this? And until you explain the why to players and coaches, it really doesn't matter what you're trying to do. So, step one, we hit it in the face with okay, understanding these the, the idea of you know skill transfer and setting up environments that replicate the game and these ideas like say say from Bernstein degrees of freedom and just. How, how, how are, how we're supposed to be interacting with our environment. It's part of what we're doing, how we perceive our environment, the idea of self-organization and how all these things play out. 
explain why that's beneficial to practice in that matter, because we're trying to come up with as many motor solutions to problems as we possibly can. And the more we can do that, the more comfortable we are with our bodies and how we how we utilize our movement. So explaining why it's more beneficial than say this perfect mechanic is great, but until you're in a game and the and the conditions are completely different, what are you gonna do? Do you have adjustability? How do you respond to different environments? Is are your skills generalized to different different situations? So explaining why that's more beneficial to practice that way as opposed to this rote rep after rep after rep um, and the benefits of it. And then actually going out there and doing it, that helps. Also, cr- taking the, the handcuffs off players and allowing and creating an environment for failure, having a safe environment to where it's okay to push and fail, push yourself. And us as coaches, allowing that to happen is really the key here. You, you create environments and practice to where it's okay to push and, and to fail. And that's where the learning comes from anyways. Once we can get past that practice performance idea, it really starts to take off. And, and you, the practice performance actually stays the same, is actually good or better. And then the most important thing is that the performance in the game uh, starts to increase. You start seeing our players play more free and their athleticism starts shining through and they're making plays that you can't even teach because they're just used to having to come up with some solution on their own. And that's been really, really, really cool to watch watch play out so hope that answers that question there but that's what we're looking for how can we represent the representative design to allow our players to feel comfortable failing because at the end of the game end of the day that that's what most of the problems runs in the game like we don't want to fail and that tightens our players up and next thing you know the performance goes down well if we practice freely we can go then go play freely and that's where we see the the best version of our athlete come through no, definitely, and I'm with you there. A couple of weeks ago, we had a you know a great conversation about blocked versus random practices, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but blocked would be like your more traditional. You know what's coming, so say like you were saying earlier, 40 mile an hour BP, the set of fastballs every single time versus random, which is like your mixed BP where you're mixing up pitches, which is what you'll mm-hmm. see more in a game. So talk to us about, you know, block versus random. And, and then I had a question for you regarding whether or not, you know, block versus random with younger people, you know, who are still trying to build skills. And I know I'm throwing a lot of questions at you, but that was okay, something yeah. that, that should we focus more on the fundamental mm-hmm. side or more on the random side or both? Or, or, you know, if you could dig into that a little bit for us, that would be awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, that, that's the art of coaching, right? Like knowing when to push and pull. Knowing not only the, you know, the what and why behind what type of practice you're doing, but also knowing that, you know, the when and how are some important questions to ask too. And that, that changes from team, like I said, team to team, player to player. So in general, so yeah, the more block practice, that's going to be more your cognitive type practice, the rep after rep, real deliberate, highly instructed learning a new movement like hey this is new i need to get the feel for this i'm thinking about the movements and yeah the drills for there would be pretty much the same you can anticipate what's going to happen to learn a new movement pattern potentially right that, that's the idea these bp thigh high same speed off a tee front flip ground ball rolling ground ball so an infielder whatever it may be right that that's more of your block here's what we're working on Here's the one or here's the drill we're doing. Here's what to you know expect. That's that's the gist of it. You get into a more a random or a, you know variability type of practice, and now yeah, you're mixing speeds um, during BP. You're mixing your timing, slides up, wind up, whatever it may be. Ground balls are all random as best you can, and it's really unpredictable. You're forcing the athlete to make a decision every single rep, as opposed to blocks where there may not be any decision making to be made. There's no decision. There's no speed variation. There's no stressor or challenge or consequence, right? Now you get to the variable, more random, and now you start adding this decision-making component to it. You have to read and react, and you actually got to do it. Um, a speed variation, whether it's fastball, curveball, changeup, or or just changing up the a slide step to a windup to your BP, or hey, slow rollers, high choppers, you know, two hoppers on the infield. Um, and then some sort of stressor, like some sort of challenge or consequence 
some some game like environment that makes it you know varying. Like your, your other question, like where should where does that line stop and start? Given the 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 level of play, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. how can I expect my athlete to go self organized when he doesn't even know what to self organize to, right? So this concept of we want optimization, not just organization. So basic concepts of like fielding positions or eliminating movements in a swing or just getting your deliver, delivery tightened up a little bit so you can have some sort of, you know, I can't say repeatable because every, every pitch is different, but some sort of replication of, okay, consistency within a pitching delivery set. Yes, there are times, especially early developmental stages where that block practice, there is value to that. Um, we can't negate the fact that there is a value to reps, especially when learning something new. Uh, we can't expect the younger players to just self-organize or self-correct into the optimal thing when they have no idea what they're doing. So that's the push and pull of coaching, knowing when, okay, this player gets the concept, now let's challenge it a little bit. And then he may fail, and he may have to go back to more of a block-type practice. And you kind of play this game between back and forth, right, of blocked and random, and depending on where they're at. So if you get a feel for their block-type practice becoming rote, they start memorizing drills, okay, let's start challenging them now and see if they can generalize it in a more competitive environment. And then you use that information, and you're, you're a guide along the way as a coach. And if they continue to fail over and over and over again, that's where that timely cueing and timely feedback comes into play. And then you may need to go more to a block type. This is bounce, right? this is bounce back and forth between the two. And that, to me, that's the art of coaching. But we, I don't think we can negate block practice completely. Uh, there, there's time, place, and value for it. Um, and, and knowing your athlete's capabilities as a coach, that's why it's so important to individualize as much as we possibly can because the whole group of players does not always need the same exact thing. And that's where I think we fall in the trap too with baseball. Is all of BP looks completely the same. When you have 13 different hitters, you're, it's impossible, right? Or all my ground ball sessions looked exactly the same. Well, all my infielders are different. Well, they don't all need the same thing. And that's, that's, that's the push and pull and the play of, and that, well, like I, I like to call the art of coaching of knowing when, when and how, uh, to implement the different types of ideas. Oh, definitely. And I, and I think that's the, one of the toughest parts of our job is really figuring out, you know, what each kid needs. But something I wanted to ask you about, and it's something that you've mentioned a couple of times, and that's self-organization. Now, are you talking about like Bernstein principle where, you know, your body will, you know, organize itself based on the the outcome that you're trying to achieve or something different? Basically, yeah. So that's what we're looking to get into where we as coaches create environments to allow our athletes to formulate a, a solution on their own. What they need to do with their body types, their personal constraints, whether, you know, it's height, speed, weight, whatever it may be. What do they need to do with their own personal body to execute a given task? And that's how they're going to self-organize their body. Our, our bodies are complex systems that are, are really, really smart and, and really a- able to formulate a solution to execute a task. And that looks different for everybody. So the idea that we're, we're trying to drill in a specific movement pattern over and over and over and over again makes zero sense if you really think about it and that's what Bernstein was getting to is you can't train a movement in isolation right there, there has to be an environmental context and your movements are in response to that and how you perceive it mm-hmm. and that's different for everyone so so skill and like skill skilled movement isn't really learning like specific motor commands or motor patterns but or and repeat them over and over it's more about our perception and, and how we interact with the environment that we're performing in. And that changes from player to player. And that's where how you, how you self-organize your body compared to me is going to be different. Um, and that's, we, we really have to keep that in mind as coaches where we have to allow our athletes to figure out how their body works. We have to learn their bodies and their limitations and the environments that we create to allow this to happen uh, optimally. Again, like the, the, the ideas are like this degrees of freedom, right? Our bodies have like infinite amounts of ways 
um, through our muscles and tendons and ligaments and all that, infinite amount of ways to to come together and execute a task, mm-hmm. right? The same one. So that's the idea. So why would we practice one particular movement pattern when we the game doesn't play that way and our bodies can adapt and adjust depending on, on, on the environment given our the environment, the task at hand, and our personal constraints as players. So that's the idea of allowing our players to really explore and formulate a solution. Like, so if we are, if we do that, it's like, so you're a teacher and you know this. If you were to give your students the lecture and then give them the answers to the test, they don't, they didn't learn anything. It's same thing, similar in practice where if we present these problems, drills, whatever the environment would create in the drills, and then like we tell them everything to do, the body's going to do with it. They can figure out what you're telling them without really learning. Mm-hmm. And then the test comes, and uh oh, what do I do now? I don't know my movements because I was been doing some, you know, someone else told me what to do. And that's kind of the idea here, right? Like challenging our guys to self-organize, get them to feel their bodies and how, what it looks like for them, maybe different for another. And that's that's the real challenge I think as coaches, and that's the art of it, and that's the fun of it to me. Well, and I think that's something that you know I've. So I've changed drastically since when I, whenever I first started coaching and that's, you know, constraint training and external cues versus internal cues. So do you mind hitting on that a little bit? Yeah. So plenty of research on, on that uh, internal cues where you're, you're actually focusing on your actual movement pattern. Hey, my wrist goes here. My elbow does this. My hip does that. My leg goes there actually slows down your motor output, right? It slows your reaction time down and it just, it slows you down. As opposed to having more of an external approach, hey, hit the ball over the center field wall, you know, drive your, you know, drive your spike into the ground as opposed to put your heel down. Feel like you're sitting down in a chair. I don't know, kick over the bucket, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. These external cues where you're thinking outside and like, okay, then you're really letting your body self organize and, and perform that movement like it would do the actions you're asking to do. And it, now you're able to react faster and your, your output is much stronger and more effective. Um, and powerful, and that's what we're looking for. So, using cues like that really help uh, in a practice environment, especially. You know, that that's that's a good thing to hit on, knowing not only when but how we use those those cues can really help. You know, expedite the process of of learning. No, absolutely, and you know, I something that I, I've I didn't start doing soon enough is asking the athlete to explain what I'm trying to get them to do in their own words. So say for instance, you're, you know, an old cue of pitching was you want them to reach out or, or you want them to get extension or, 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 you know, whatever. And so you say, okay, so I want you to hold the ball a little longer. I want you to get the ball down. But in your own words, what's that, what's that word that you need to do to get the ball lower if you're throwing it too high? And, you know, they may say finish. I'm saying, okay, all right. So you need to finish. So in your own words, if you are throwing the ball high or you're not spinning your curveball in, in, in a, or in a good fashion to where it's breaking or you're just hanging it, what is a word that you could use? You know, finish has been a popular one lately. Right, but, right. But it's their language. So instead mm. of me telling them to do X or this or that, it's them saying, okay, I need to finish this. I remember how that felt because I told you exactly what it was and I had to figure mm-hmm. out what that word was that I could use to help myself. If that, and that, that's just been a game changer for me as far as, okay, so how would you tell yourself to do this? What, what, what word can I use or what vocabulary can I use to get you to do, go from what you did the pitch before to what you just did? Part, you know, you're partnering up. It's, it's a, it's a partnership when you're talking about practice and coaching. Like you got to work with the player. They got asking questions. You know, you're asking like, Asking questions leads to better discussion. Like mm, it, yeah. it allows you to understand where where they're coming from, what they're trying to do, what they're feeling, and I can speak in their language because you never know how they interpret what you're saying if you don't ask. Like who knows? You know, you can you, you can say one thing and have five different interpretations of it from all your players. Absolutely. And once you start speaking their language and what under keywords for them and what works for the individual you can really start taking off with, with the development of your player. I mean, that's just, indivi- anytime you can individualize, you're, gonna, you're just going to get better results. That's all there is to it because that's, we're, we're, we're all individuals, man. That's just how we are. So 
asking questions, understanding languages. I mean, that's all part of these creating. That's why we want to create a more dynamic environment in practice. In your practice settings and your practice scheduling and the drills you're using, like how the drill should just be used to design the task that the that you want your players to to, to formulate a solution, right? So if you're if you can identify what your what you want your player to do, rather than tell them what to do, mm. create your drill or environment to expose that limitation or what you're trying to work on, and then ask questions from there. I love it. Probably a really good way to go doing it instead of saying, "Hey, on this ball, do this." No, exploit the exploit the limitation and have the discussion of how how it felt, why, when, and, and how after, and then you can really get into it. Absolutely. So, Sean, last week you presented at the Sport Movement Skill Conference and up in Minnesota. So, can you tell us what or give us a preview of what you presented on? Yeah. So, talked about. First of all, to me, I feel like I was the undercard this whole, at, this, at this conference. There's a really powerful speakers there, varying backgrounds in movement and movement specialties. So they had a lot of great things to say about the constraint split approach and Bernstein and all these different movement ideas. But my particular presentation looked at the developmental like developmental path, if you will, or, or how, how it looks different through different stages of development. Through the lens of baseball. So, how does practice design and, 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 and movement variability, if you will, at the developmental stages, say little kids up until preteen, how does that look different from teenagers in high school and college at the amateur level compared to how we practice at the professional level and then the big leagues, the elite level? Like, how do those all look a little bit different and how do we use the thoughts? From the movement, the, you know, the movement wave of, of thought. How how does it look differently at each stage? And that's kind of what I I dug into, and you know what my practices look like with our professional players at the minor league level. It will look a lot different than how, say, a college setting looks like, or kids. You know, I nine and ten year olds. That looks my practices are going to look different than what a a travel ball team or or a high school team practice should look like, given. The ideas from block practice, random practice, and what those individual needs for that those age groups are. Um, really dug deep into that and had a lot of fun doing it. I love it. You know, talking about you know your eighteen year old or eighteen year old kids, and and you being a guy that played in the minor leagues, got all the way up to AAA, and is now coaching professional baseball players. So if you, and, and you've learned, I'm sure, just an infinite amount in, in the process from then to now. So if you could go back and tell yourself, your 18-year-old self, a couple of things, what would those things be? You know, I would really personally reframe in my own mind what practice looked like and what practice was for. Now, I'm not just saying that because that's what I'm involved with now, but, you know, growing up, it was all about reps, 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 you know, work, 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 this perfect practice idea, you know, low variability, low failure. And then with that, just allow myself for more imperfection, um, you know, and be more aware of the learning opportunities that, that were presented at a younger age that I just didn't recognize. I saw them as failure and I'm not good enough as opposed to, okay, why am I failing potentially? And why is this drill beating me? Why? Am I not catching the ball the right way? Whatever it may be, uh, as opposed to just going to the batting cage and just ball after ball after ball. I got really, really, really good at a fastball middle end because that's what the pitching machine always do. And I got really good at that. And as I got older and I got to the higher levels, oh, guess what? People throw sinkers and they don't throw on that same plane. So anything off the middle end of a fastball, I had a really hard time. I had no answer to go the other way. Anything off the middle of the plate away was F7 or 4-3, left-handed hitter. And the same thing on defense. Like, I just, I caught the ball and threw it across, but I didn't allow myself the freedom to explore different movement patterns that I probably could have if I had just been more free and, and wasn't so locked up with being perfect. So, allowing myself to fail more and then learning from those those experiences, I would go back and say, hey, look, man, loosen up, stop it. Stop pouting and, and moping around and learn something from what's going on. And who do you think you are? You're not that good yet, right? You're not that good to get that upset in a practice setting. 
especially as an amateur. And that, that's something I would really look to tell myself a long time ago, stop myself upside the head and say, stop it. <laughs> you know, right. uh, those are, those I think are the major points and really just to enjoy the process a little bit more than, than really putting the clamps on myself and being so hard on myself. And I'll tell you what, you just hit on something that, that I'm struggling well, I don't struggle with, but something that I am starting to make more aware of myself and that's enjoying. So that's, that's been my mm-hmm. word of the year. So instead of, you know, looking at the, the next way to better myself or the next way to how do I get to this point in my career or I'm not at this point in my career or, or how can I, it just to take a step back and go, you know what? I've got a pretty good life and mm-hmm. just to enjoy every single day. And, and instead of worrying about the future because I'm a planner to just, <laughs> you know, enjoy what, uh, what's going on in my life right now. So I love that. And, uh, you hit on something earlier too, about how you are constantly learning and you're constantly mm-hmm. pushing yourself to get better. So what's mm-hmm. something that you've learned lately that you're really excited about? I tell you what, I, I'm really like, I'm really fortunate to be in professional baseball in, in the role, but more specifically with, with the Dodgers organization. And there's just the people around, there's just so many different things that are going on with conversations and all that there's a lot to be excited about just but in general the world of sport is, is growing immensely in terms of practice and with the you know social media so there's so many things uh, to look into so you're looking at like what i think is really incredible right now is like this the use of technology for feedback and for feedback for tracking for monitoring and how to best utilize it you know with the track man or episodes and game cat like all these different things I think are really cool to, to dig into and get the most out of their, you know, their, their use and, and how to utilize it for our players in terms of improving our skill. Um, I'm really getting into more now and be, be more aware and cognizant of integrating, you know, mobility and flexibility of our players. And so we're not, so are we asking our athletes to perform movements that they aren't even capable of doing? Cause whether there's a limitation structurally or they're just not strong enough yet. Um, that's been really intriguing to me lately and exciting to really guide how I go with our practice plans and what I'm asking our players to do uh, movement-wise. And are we asking our players to do things they just can't do? Right. So I'm really getting involved and interested in how the more interested specifically in if there's limitations um, with their body, what that means, what it looks like, and how it impacts them on the field, and then how converse, how to make sure they're getting their work done off the field that can complement what we're doing on the field. So those two things, I think, just integrating the, the entire process of the player and the use of technology and how, and how we can use it for for the benefit, as opposed to as just reactionary to what happened, but okay, how can we actually use that in our practice settings? Definitely, and you hit the <laughs> hit me square between the nose because that's exactly what something that I've been working on is why are why is player X's mechanics so much different than this one? Is it a mobility issue or is it a strength issue? And it's man, that's that's why coaching is really hard because it's, <laughs> yes, and yes. it's I used to think there was a set of ideal mechanics, and now getting in more into the movement side and and the mobility side and the strength side and and still staying with the baseball side, it's like there are so many more factors than I thought there were into what building a baseball player looks like. So. So I'm right there with you, man. It's that's a great, great comment. So sticking on the subject of learning, what are some of your favorite resources, books, programs that we can go and find and start reading and start digging into? Like I, I think I mentioned before, I mean, if you're not on Twitter or some sort of social media, I mean, these are gold mines for information and interaction. You know, I've met more people through Twitter now, just in terms of just through interaction and following and following each other and commenting on each other stuff, and letting you know these lead the conferences and and podcasts and that is one of my main resources right now is is following the the right people i limit the noise you know i don't follow too many people because the more you follow the the more noise you get you you actually miss a lot of really good stuff so i think i I say follow really really quality things as opposed to how many people you can follow that that to me that's been that's been magical in terms of like movement and skill acquisition stuff specifically, I mean, Sean Mishka, the you know, movement, movement Miyagi and Rob Gray, who's shaky weights. Those guys are incredible. Um, those are my go-to guys. You know, Sean Mishka was the conference organizer 
those guys are and whoever they're following and, and retweeting and like get on that train because there's a lot of good information out there in terms of of movement and skill acquisition, skill transfer. In terms of books, I one of my favorites is it's called the Hoops Whisperer, but it's a basketball trainer who trains elite the elite basketball from Kevin Durant and Carmelo Anthony is at their peaks. Like he walks through how he designed their individual practices, and it's incredible what he what he gives up and, and what those what those sessions look like. And that really did open my eyes even more to wow, these elite athletes are practicing in, in a incredible environment that no one sees. And he really walks through a nice process with his experiences with these elite basketball players. So the Hoops Whisperer is incredible. Uh, obviously, anything by Nikolai Bernstein and, and some of the, the founders of the movement. Movement pattern, movement. If you want the one that probably got me really going, I was in my master's program and it was a motor learning class. Motor learning and performance by Richard Schmidt is gives some really good nuggets too. Um, and there's really anymore a quick Google search on anything movement, constraints, letter approach, you know, dynamic systems. You can pull up scholarly articles that uh, will give you a lot of really good things. I'm in research. So. Internet's a useful place, but those specific things I mentioned and people, Sean Mishka, Rob Gray, those guys are incredible. So uh, those are the things I would recommend. And anyone who asks me, hey, what's a good book on this stuff? I always, Hoops Whisperer is like number one. Especially walks through how how these guys practice. And what really smacked me between the eyes was we forget how vulnerable elite athletes are. And especially the younger they get. Like they don't want to be embarrassed. And I think we shy away from our practice designs to be challenging because we a don't want to be exposed as coaches like we think oh my gosh if he doesn't perform well it's on me or two the player just get disgruntled and they get frustrated so we'd rather just avoid that and you'll see all these elite athletes i see it in in, in the big league in the big league too these these guys train they challenge themselves just no one sees it it's on the backfield it's in the, it's in the cage before anyone's there uh, they just don't want to be exposed because at some point it gets to a point where they don't. They society views them as you know Superman, and they can, they want to uphold that image. So that that was really one that really opened my eyes to wow. I didn't realize that it makes so much sense why you don't see elite athletes practice. All we see of them is doing cool stuff like wow, look how good he is. Well, you didn't you didn't really see him practice. You saw him showing off. You know, so the hoops whisperer is a really good one. I love it. And for our coaches out there who are, you know, directed mostly to high school college coaches who mm-hmm. don't have an unlimited budget, what's your mm-hmm. favorite coaching tool that you've bought for under $100? A set of eyes and trial and error, baby, are free. <laughs> you know, <laughs> trust your eyes. That's, a, that's one of the biggest. Trust your eyes and don't be afraid to try new things. And if it fails, then you learn. You know, like, what do your players need? That's okay. So yeah, set of eyes, trial and error, free. But I, I really do feel there's a lot of money spent on coaching aids um, that are outside you know, ob- objective technology that I think are just kind of gimmicky. And there is again a lot of really good research on apparatuses, if you will, that are trying to help a movement pattern. And the the research will show that's actually detrimental. So be careful with what you're buying in terms of in terms of aids. Anytime you can change ball, like ball, like weighted balls, varying size baseballs, um, that's always good. Weighted bats, underload bats, like those things you could probably either A, make yourself with, you know, tape bats or pen, like a penny bat makes it heavy. Some underload bats are really cheap and different size baseballs and, and stuff. Those are really good. Just to vary fields and allow for some self organization that way too. Uh, those are what I'm interested in. There's probably a ton more out there, but I would keep, you know, this is, hey, just be careful on what it is and, and what those training aids are doing in terms of movement pattern solutions. If, if it's aiding or restricting movement to try to get the point across, it's probably doing more detriment than good because you're not really, you're, you're not in control of the movement you're anymore. This apparatus is, and then again, you're not learning. So I would just, you know, heed caution. When, when, when looking into some of these uh, things that are out there now. Definitely. And, and I feel like we can't go a, an entire episode without have, having some driveline mentioned, but here's my yeah. shameless driveline plug of the day. And yeah. it's, they just came out with some command balls 
And, mm-hmm. you know, we got them out today and we're playing around with them a little bit. And so what they are is they're balls that are either four ounces, five ounces, or six ounces, and they're either 5% bigger or 5% mm-hmm. smaller than a regular baseball. And what mm-hmm. it's, it's supposed to help with proprioceptive feel and, and with command and just trying to figure out how I can throw them all in the same release point and get them to go to the exact same spot. And I'll tell you what. It was a lot of fun trying to watch watch some of these guys throw those all in the same look because mm-hmm. there's no there's not a big difference, but it's enough difference to where they're having to really think and feel through every single thing that they're trying to do. So just to go along with you know the 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 weighted balls, weighted bats thing, mm-hmm. those aren't those are four and six ounces and a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller, and they you know it's I think they're seventy bucks, but that was a lot of fun as well. Exactly, I I'm in on it. Driveline does a lot of really good things, both on both sides of the ball. They do really good stuff. That's that's probably another person. If people aren't following Driveline, uh, you know Kyle Bodie and, and O'Card, the hitting hitting instructor. There, I mean, you probably should be. <laughs> you know, uh, whether you agree with everything or not, one thing. But just if anything, it gets your mind thinking of, huh? There are a lot of different ways to go about doing it, and probably something you could be looking into to implement into your program. Definitely. And this question is a little bit out of left field, but it's something that I've started to, you know, ask uh, some of our guests and and I think that you would be a great candidate for. What is something that you do at practice that your players just love and they they can't get enough of? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that? Live fungo. Live fungo, the infielders absolutely love it. We're soft tossing. You're soft tossing the coach. He's banging a fungo to the infielders like that. They love it. Live fungo, all in on, um, and the hitters, any sort of competition. If there's a competition day, guys are in. Always have fun. We get them on the clock. I mean, it's like, it's anytime you can add competition and something that's game like, our guys specifically are all in, especially get the competition involved. And I can't stress that enough. Competition, game like, let's go. You know, me versus you or this group versus that group, it's on. And, you know, coaches got to have energy. They get into it. There's some trash talking involved. There's some hooting and hollering, celebrating incredible plays or bombs. I mean, we cannot forget to have fun and, and, and compete sometimes with, you know, with some sort of consequence is always a great time. So you're saying that. Even Major League Baseball players act like kids at practice sometimes. Oh, they better be, man. The best I tell you what they do, and that's some things that sometimes we don't see. But baseball is a kid's game. It always will be. And we got to make sure we don't take that out of it at any level that we're playing it. Well, I lied. I've, I've got one more question for you before you go. <laughs> so what is something – and this is this is more for – Maybe coaches giving advice to our players or even the players listening. What do you see as the difference between the really good Major League Baseball players to great? Because you guys have a ton of them between those guys and, you know, some of the, you know, just regular minor league guys or, or high school college guys. What's the difference between them besides, you know, size, strength, speed, anything? What are some right. of the controllables that we can, uh, that, that we can dig in on? I tell you, man, it, it, it's no secret. It's just the intent at which they do everything. Everything matters, whether it's a, a simple knee drill for the infielders working their hands to any sort of offensive drill. It is highly intense, highly focused, and whatever they're doing for what they personally need, that's one. And the second one, they just, they're able to repeat it at a high level in the game when it's on the line. They're able to execute their skill set under varying conditions consistently. It's not just about making the routine play routine, which they do. It's about making every play on the defensive side at a, at a high pace. And like I said, varying conditions, they make those things every single night. Uh, and that's the biggest difference from a, probably a minor leaguer, major leaguer to a minor leaguer, and then from professionally guy, probably professional down the lower, the lower ranks, but it's just being able to execute your skill set with how you do it, with your movement patterns, and the varying conditions that come about, whether it's the field size, the crowd noise, the wet nights, the cold nights, the hot days, you know, tired, sore, whatever it may be, they're able to find a solution to the particular play that needs to be made consistently. Same thing for the pitchers, they can execute pitches, hitters, 
they're able to adjust to different speeds, locations, and and can they, and they compete, man. It's highly, highly competitive individuals. I and mean, you go play ping pong in the clubhouse, that turns into a competition. You know, you're you're driving, you know, you're watching something on TV, that turns into a bet. Like it's just everything's competitive with those guys, and there's a reason why they're the best. Got it. Well, Coach Larkin, and thank you so much for spending time with us today. So for our listeners who may want to get in contact with you, follow you on Twitter, or maybe ask you a couple of questions, where can we find you online in case they want to do that? Uh, at, at slarkin04 is my Twitter. You know, shoot me a message anytime. Follow what I'm trying to put out there. I, I retweet a lot. I quote a lot of people. Um, see who I'm following, maybe. Uh, yeah, at slarkin04 is, is where you can find me on, on social media. That's the only one I stick to. I'm not into any of the other ones. I'm probably too old for those anyway so <laughs> I gotcha. well uh before you go is there is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners yeah you know what i think for the amateur coaches or just all coaches i my biggest thing is let, allow your players room to fail and, and, and embrace the failure part of it players too like don't be afraid to go out there and push your limits you know we want to create the a creative fearless mentality you know through the environments that you're creating as, as a Opposed to being this fearful environment where if I make an error mistake, I'm going to have to run polls or my, someone's going to yell at me or let's just stay away from that. Let's get more creative with our, allow our athletes to be athletic within their capabilities, you know, and setting up these environments to stretch capabilities. Cause if we're not encouraging our players to reach just a little past their current grasp, then how can we really fully understand what we're all capable of? Whether it's our players, whether our coaching ability or, or anything like how can we just continue reaching to be great and the only way we do that is we're going to fail sometimes and we have to be okay with that if we're doing it the right way in a safe environment thank you for listening to ahead of the curve if you'd like to view the show notes or get in touch with me you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com or on the texas high school baseball coaches association app Help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. But before you go, here's a quick word from our friends at Keeper of the Game. I am Keeper of the Game.